Amen. Have a seat. Good morning, church. I, uh, I pray that and hope that this morning you come here uh, finding uh, joy and, and encouragement in the gospel. Uh, today is usually a really exciting day for me uh, each year. But this year, it is just a testament that the ways of the world will always disappoint and leave us uh, weary. We, yeah, we come here this morning, the, our, the beloved team gets misses out on a technicality, and the Judas Iscariot of the NFL gets to play the guy who's won a thousand times. So anyway, this uh, our hope is in the gospel and the gospel alone, and this, tonight will be a testament to that. <laughs> So I say that we uh, we begin today. We're going to begin working through the book of Galatians, and we're going to spend the the rest of this school semester in the book of Galatians. I'm looking forward to that. Um, before we dive into that, I did want to just give one little footnote um, on uh, as, as far as announcements go. I, I like Alex. I'm really excited about our upcoming membership class, and and I want to just. Um, reiterate what that what we try to do that uh, three or four times a year and the purpose of that is is really just if you've been visiting and and maybe you feel and I'm, I'm in I want this to be my church home we would point you to that as a next step or maybe you've been coming and, and you're really just kind of on the fence you'd like to learn more you'd like to be able to ask more questions you'd like to dive a little deeper I would also point you to that. That's for both of those uh, situations. So uh, if you want to be a part of that, just if you could, over the next few weeks, send me an email. Let me know uh, that you want to take part, and uh, lunch will be provided, and I'm looking forward to that day. So that will be coming up at the beginning of March. And on that same note, if you went through our membership class in the fall, basically uh, we spent the fall doing kind of a membership series, and then over the month of September we met on Wednesday nights to talk about membership. If you went through that, um, then you were distributed a, a membership covenant, kind of an agreement of, of what we commit to one another as members. Um, you were given that maybe there towards the end of the year. Uh, we've had a few people turn those in, but if you have, if you still have that, if you have questions about that, if you feel like we need to meet one-on-one and, and talk a little bit about that, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, we'd love to, uh, you know, again, collect those and kind of have a new member celebration uh, in the coming months. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to reach out to me. Or if you went through that and you still would like to learn a little bit more and you want to come uh, join in on the new membership class, you're welcome to do that as well. I'm going to pray and then we will uh, dive into Galatians chapter one. Father, thank you uh, for this day. And, uh, Lord, for the truth that there really is only one gospel. And uh, we, can, we can get it distorted. Our, our flesh, Lord, is weak. Uh, some days we fail to believe it. And, uh, Lord, it, that doesn't make it any less true. And that doesn't cease to um, be as powerful as it is because of us. It uh, remains constant. It remains steadfast. It remains our only hope. And Lord, I pray this morning we would have... Uh, hope in the gospel, we would be encouraged by your word, and uh, that you would just build us up and strengthen us as a church through the power of the gospel. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. Human nature, it's a complex thing. All of us uh, desire to make sense of this life, and we desire that from a very early age. And so from an early age, we develop rules about life. And, and we don't only develop rules, we also inherit rules culturally uh, that we operate in or that we very intentionally don't operate in, but we're still aware of. These rules provide safety and they give us a framework for controlling our lives. But at the same time, especially as we, as we get a little bit older, 
they also bring reproach and they bring guilt and they bring shame and they bring loss into our life. This was Paul. Uh, The book of Galatians is a letter written to the church and it was written by Paul. And Paul was a man who was a rule keeper. He had done all he could to build up righteousness for himself. But then one day, and we're going to learn more about Paul's experience over this semester, the gospel changed everything. It changed everything about who he was and what he believed. The gospel is powerful because it reveals to us the ways of God, which stand in contrast to the natural ways of our heart. There's this really beautiful thing that happens in that moment when God reveals the gospel to our heart. The law, which up until that point is is condemning and it feels impossible, the commands of God, God's expectations of us, feel crushing and condemning as they were right in assuming they are impossible to keep. The law of God makes us feel like outsiders because outside of Christ, that's exactly what we are. The law separates us from a perfect, perfectly holy God because the law is something we cannot keep. And this is where resentment from this is where one of the main areas where the resentment of the world comes into the play. The, the world sees the law of God and God's word. They see a standard that they couldn't even begin to uphold. And so when, when you see the, the God's word is simply a standard that you can't uphold, it's just you just hate it and you resent it. And how dare anybody tell you that you are to live in such a way? And so it, it builds animosity and resentment. But when the gospel takes root in our hearts, there's a gladness around the law where we've, we, we see that we've been set free to pursue holiness. And, and because we, we know that if we stumble, we know that we will stumble in pursuit of that holiness but we know that God loves us the same and that ultimately that has been paid for in Christ. And so all of a sudden, the law no longer feels like weight to us, but it becomes like David describes in Psalm 119, 97 through 104. I want to read to you David um, singing about the law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Okay, nobody talks like that about the law. Like, that's pretty bizarre. And what makes that more bizarre is that David stinks at keeping the law. Like, David's track record with keeping the law is terrible. And yet, he's come to this place where he sings about the law as being being like honey on my lips. That's because David came to see the law through the truth of the gospel through the grace of God, that the law ultimately makes him more like Christ. And the Christ he couldn't even name, but he knew was coming through his lineage. David understood that his hope was in one who was to come, who would make a perfect way. And in that truth, David began to rejoice in the law as not being something he could keep perfectly, but something that was making him more like Jesus. 
The gospel is profoundly powerful to transform. And we see that in the lives of David and so many others, including many who sit in this room. When the gospel is preached, powerful things happen. However, as powerful as it is to transform, it's also frail in our flesh. Although the gospel is powerful in transforming the works in our hearts, we have a tendency to drift away from the gospel and to drift primarily into two great perversions of the gospel, and neither is actually the gospel, for there is only one. The two lies, the two perversions of the gospel that we tend to drift towards are license and legalism. License is the idea that the gospel frees me to live however I want. I no longer need the direction of God. I'm not dependent on his word. I don't need to be a part of his church. When we experience radical grace, the, the way that the enemy can lie to us and pervert the gospel is we begin to feel well, I've, I've been given the grace of Jesus. None of these other things are of benefit to me. Is the, is the local church, isn't that kind of outdated? Like all of a sudden the things that God commands of us lose their significance. We're not like David who understood that, that, those, that what God tells us, he tells us as a loving parent who wants good for their kids. And thus, as we mature, we begin to rejoice in those things, knowing they're for our safety and our good. What is equally Um, An equal distortion is legalism, and legalism is the idea that salvation comes through Jesus plus anything, anything. Jesus plus my obedience to the rules, Jesus plus my tradition, Jesus plus the way I think should be. while, While many of those things we put in those gap are good things, none of those things are, are, are pre-qualifications for salvation. Salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. Satan has long used gospel distortions to, to attack the church. It's one of his primary means for causing unhealth in the local church. And today, and the rest of this semester, we're going to be walking through Galatians, and that's exactly what the book of Galatians is about. Paul is writing to the churches in southern Galatia. So essentially, during the first missionary journey, Paul had helped to kind of, he had helped to to plant some churches in Galatia. They kind of morphed into not just one body, but a network of churches that were here in this region. And this was during his first missionary journey to Asia Minor. And Paul's close relationship with these churches explains, like what you're going to see as we dive into this, is Paul takes a strong, firm tone. With these churches, he is he is very blunt. He is very to the point. He is very passionate, and that passion is driven by his love for these people. He knows these people personally. He was with them. He helped plant these churches. He invested in these people. He saw them converted. He shared the gospel. He got to know them personally as family, and so he cares greatly and is concerned greatly about what is happening there. And what's happening there, as Paul arrives back in Antioch around the end of that first journey, he's been gone probably 18 months, he begins to get reports that there's a lot of unhealth raising up in the churches there in Galatia, that specifically they're beginning to to struggle mightily as they've fallen into some theological error. What had happened was, at this point in the history of the church, the, the church 
Christianity really started amongst Messianic Jews, essentially, that, that the Jewish people of God saw Christ as the fulfillment, as the promised one. Like that, That's what we celebrated during Advent, that they saw that God had kept his word. And then, But what's, what's happening is now the church is about half non-Jewish people. It's about half-Christian um, Gentiles. And these are people who have no background. They weren't Jewish. They didn't, up, they didn't uphold those traditions. They were saved by the truth of the gospel, like the gospel is all they know. And so now these two groups of people, kind of your, your traditionalists and your Gentiles, they're coming together. And there's a group of these Jewish folks that have, have, have begun to step in and say, well, it's not just grace alone. You also have to keep these Jewish traditions. And so things like kosher meals and, and, and different things, you know, like the, the, all the traditions in the Old Testament that, that they uphold as, as Jewish people, they're beginning to connect those to the gospel as if it's both. And people, these new Christians who don't have that background are very confused by this. Like Paul said, grace alone. Paul said, Christ alone. And, and so this is causing animosity in the church. And actually, uh, this, would, this letter is written just a few months before Paul would attend the Jerusalem Council in AD 49. And Acts 15 is strictly, an, it is writing specifically what happens at the Jerusalem Council. And the whole point of Acts 15 is them addressing this very issue because the church is is very divided in this way. I'm going to tell you, friends, like all these years later, the church is still divided in this way. Um, we, but here's what here's what happens. There's two kinds of people that make up the ch- the church. You have people who have grown up in the church, people who have a religious background. And, and for us, even, even after um, experiencing the gospel, for years and years of our life, we, were, we, we, we experienced these traditions and we experienced these ways of doing things. And it becomes very natural for us to want to attach those to the gospel, as if the gospel is Jesus, but we also need to do things this way because that's part of it. And, that, and so for those of us who have maybe grown up in that background, legalism is going to be the natural tendency of, of our heart as far as gospel distortion. But then you have other people who come to, as the church lives out their call as missionaries, they, they come to know Jesus, they experience the gospel, they come to the church, they, have, they don't have that baggage attached. And so they come and, and, and there can be a rub. Like, they, uh, the, the tendency more in, in that situation can be license. Like, I, I, I haven't experienced these traditions. I, I still desire some of the things I used to desire. I, I've maybe things, uh, some of the difficulty a, a sinful life caused for me, those things are still there. They don't go away upon conversion. And so license can be more the struggle. And within the church, local bodies individually, and within one church and within the churches in the community, this can be a struggle. We, we tend towards, we can tend towards one of those struggles either way. In advance of the Jerusalem Council, Paul writes this letter to speak wisdom and clarity into the first real controversy in the early years of the church. The relationship between these Jews and the Christian Gentiles. The Christian Gentiles had been converted on the basis of a pure gospel preached by Paul. 
Yet the Judaizers had, had heard this gospel and wanted to bring legalism along with it that they had long held to. And so that takes us to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul has heard of this. He's greatly concerned. And, and here's what he uh, has to say. I'm going to read um, the whole passage, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now, for am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Beginning in verses 1 and 2, he says who he declares who he is and on what authority he comes. Paul is well aware that this letter is going to be a little bit of a punch in the gut to the church. And so he wants to make clear from the beginning by what power and on whose authority he writes such things. And so he declares that Paul is made an apostle not from men or not through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Every minister of God's word, everyone who seeks to serve pastorally in the local church, not not that that's the equivalent to an apostle, but the same principle remains. If you are one who, who seeks to share the gospel, preach the gospel, you better make sure that you know where that authority comes from to be sure of that calling. There is a reason, and this verse kind of makes clear why we take eldership so seriously as a church. In December, uh, we got to introduce our two elder candidates, and we got to describe kind of the nine-month process we were beginning. This verse right here reiterates why we take such a stance. Because if you're going to lead the church, if you're going to preach to the church, you better be sure that that calling is from God and not from man or not from yourself. The process that we go through, the point isn't, it's not, it's not like nine months of seminary. We're not teaching a class or doing lectures every month, but it's a period of time where a man can walk through with others really affirming that calling. Is, is God calling me to this? Because the question, answer to that question better be yes, has to be yes, or the enemy will have a heyday with you. A royal ambassador does not make declarations from the standpoint of a private citizen, but he makes declarations on behalf of the king. So should anyone who seeks to minister to the local church be able to claim the same confidently. One who preaches the gospel, who leads the church, 
better be sure to do so on the authority of Jesus. And Paul wants to make that clear from the beginning. He says, not from men and not through men. Not from men, meaning Paul was not an apostle because he followed men. He wasn't some fanboy who was listening to Peter's blog, you know, podcast every week and decided, hey, I'm going to do this to be like Peter. Like he, it didn't come through that. Paul was the opposite of that. Paul wanted nothing to do with the church, hated the church, and then God shows up, kicks him off his horse, says, you're mine now. You're going to do what I've called you to do. And Paul, for the rest of his life, would ultimately do what the Lord had called them to. His call didn't come from men. It came from Jesus showing up in a powerful way. His call didn't come through men. Paul was not given this call by men. It wasn't that a group of people said, you know, Paul, you've been doing a really good job in Sunday school. You know, you, you, you've self-published a couple of books. Like, you should go forward and, 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 and seek to be an apostle. It, it didn't work that way. God called him to these things. Now, having said that, it is important to note that that was affirmed by men, that God called Paul to be an apostle, to plant churches, and then Paul goes and he's surrounded by the other apostles, and it didn't take long for them to affirm Yep, this dude is not. They were, at first they were scared of him, but then they very quickly affirmed that God had called him. And 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 that's that's I want to just say that because this is a little bit of a picture of why we treat the eldership process the way we do. We want you to be called by God, and then we we walk in that together. Like it's good to have brothers and sisters and a church family that can help affirm that call. And this is one of the great dangers of the local church that we face today. Leaders called by other people or called by themselves. Because when that's the case in you, you will come a day where you will compromise if you are not called as a representative of God. Not too recently, I, I experienced a, an instant of this. There was a, uh, we, we, we um, had a local church that was slightly concerned about how we view eldership. Um, what's happened in the Baptist denomination is there were decades ago, there, there began a, a time where it was really like eldership is weighty and hard and takes a lot of time investment. And sometimes a church, you just don't, you just don't, you're not blessed with people who can fill that role in that time. And so the church began to take the deacon role and give them eldership responsibilities because that's all they had to do. They had these folks that could be deacons, and so they began to serve in such a way. And then, as we do, that became tradition, and we began to just not question why we do that, and that just became the way things were done. And so there was a, a local Baptist minister who came to me concerned about our view on elders because... Their church has been here for a long time and has always been led by deacons. And um, after meeting and having lunch with him, he concluded by saying, I agree with you. I think you're right. I think this is what scripture says. But I couldn't ever endorse your body because my people don't think that way and they don't see it as such. I note, I think this was a, a great man and, and a good minister, but in that moment, I couldn't help but feel the weight of, do you, are you called by men or are you called by God? If you believe that God's word is such, how could you make such a statement as to not share the truth of his word because of fear of, of what men would say? And that's, that's a great struggle of the local church and one we have to fight against. The gospel minister must preach God's word unapologetically, and to do this, his motivation must be the glory of God and not his own. 
In verses 3 through 5, after making that abundantly clear, Paul begins his, uh, his greeting. He says, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul always does, he's getting ready to do a long address, but it starts with declaring the truth of the gospel. First things first, Paul reminds them of the gospel by which they have been saved, and then everything else is going to flow from that. The gospel is an announcement of good news, and that's why Paul opens his letter with declaring that the gospel is the truth, that God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There are two reasons, primarily, that we must be willing and able to speak the truth in which our hope lies. Number one, it's the means by which God rescues his people. The world needs this truth. It's the only hope of a lost and dying world is the truth of the gospel. And so therefore, we must be able to to articulate it and to say it. I, I would challenge you with this. Like when you're alone in your car, when you're thinking during your devotional time, if you were asked the question, what is the gospel? Could you answer that? That seems like an easy yes, but when you really try to articulate it, it can be more complicated than you think. And even as simple as it is, we we don't really think in those terms of of articulating that very often. It's something worth giving yourself a little time to. If you had to articulate the gospel in two sentences, how would you do that? Number two, it's the means by which the Lord builds us up and encourages us making us like him. And so the gospel is not just for those who are lost, but it's also for us who have been saved because it's the means by which God continues to make us more like himself. Martin Luther, uh, who wrote one of the great commentaries on Galatians, and I've leaned on that quite a bit these last couple weeks, he said this, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. A good way to summarize the good news of the gospel is to biblically unpack the words God, man, Christ, and response. The gospel starts with the truth of God. That God is the creator of all things. He is perfectly holy. He's worthy of all worship, and he will punish sin. Revelations 4, Revelation 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That God created all things as they should be. As a loving God, he created all things artistically and creatively for his glory. Romans 2, 5 through 8 says, He will render each one according to his works. For those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God created all things as they should be for his glory, and then man entered into the picture. All people, though created good, have become sinful by nature. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
From birth, all people, we, we are alienated from God. That, as I say all the time, like you don't have to teach a child to lie. Our, our natural disposition early on is our, our sin nature begins to reveal itself as soon as we are able to physically reveal it. All people naturally are alienated from God, hostile to God, and are therefore subject to the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God, man, and then the good news, Christ. Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him and all who had believed in him. And he rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. That's the reason Paul makes a point to that he is he comes in the name of the God who raised Christ from the dead. Romans 3, 21 through 26 gives us hope in the midst of bad news. It gives us the hope of good news that is Jesus. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe, for there is no distinction. That Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, and thus our righteousness uh, comes from him alone and is no longer dependent on our obedience to the law. That although God's standard is perfect holiness, and he lives within that, and that keeps us from him, he made a way in Christ who was able to fulfill the law perfectly. And so that leads us to point number four, response. God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ in order to be saved. Mark 1.15, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul opens up his letter to the church by reminding them of the one gospel. He's going to spend the rest of this letter tearing apart the false versions of the gospel. And so in just two verses, he reminds them what the one gospel is. And then in verse 6 through 9, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul does not mince words. Paul is a pretty straight shooter time and time again. He uses a very strong term. He says deserting. He says, how are you so quickly deserting him who called you? That he, he like that, that word when you think about it, like he, I mean, this is like a million times beyond the Rams deserting Missouri, okay? Like as bad as that is in and of itself. He's calling the church. He's saying, those of you who have been rescued by Christ, how are you so quickly des- deserting Christ? Like, are you now good enough by yourself? You needed Christ. He rescued you from an ocean of sin and death. And what, now you're good enough? And you can hear the sarcasm, the snarkiness in his voice. 
You're turning to a different gospel as if there were another one? Paul uses this strong language when he accuses false teachers and those who are teaching something contrary to the gospel. And he put he doesn't just go after them. He puts the blame on the church as well. As, as, as in this moment, he's not talking just about people teaching something false. He's talking about those who know better. Are you deserting God? They're turning from the very truth of God. Because as we've titled our sermon today, there is only one gospel. Many people are offended by the gospel, both the pagan and the legalists. And often the latter is is worse. Verse 7, he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Okay, he's not talking about the outside world. He's not talking about the unbeliever. It's not the unbeliever that's coming to the church and bringing this distorted gospel. They want nothing to do with any of this. But it's those within the body who have distorted the God, who are it's these are people within the church, within the system, who are offended by the true gospel. They, even though, and this is, is still true today, like you can be in the church your whole life and still be offended by the gospel and want to make it something that it's not. Like many of us have a tendency to, the gospel would be less offensive if it was about me. If it, was, if it was something I could control, if it was something I did. But the fact that, that grace is unmerited, that it's Christ and Christ alone, that it's not about me, that I'm not the, the vocal point of this story, that's offensive, even to many within the church. And that is what's happening here. This is not an outside attack. This is an attack that is coming from within. Paul speaks of this present age as evil. He talks about this evil age. This is the devil's kingdom. And the devil uses his tricks. No heretic comes up claiming errors and speaking in the name of Satan. That's never how that works. He conceals himself. Satan conceals himself as being an angel of light. He disguises himself in that which appears to be of God. That's what he has done from the beginning. It happened in the garden. It happens today. Satan doesn't show up very often like you see in the scary movies. Okay, Not that, that, not that there, there is spiritual warfare, but it often doesn't look like that. It often looks innocent and subtle, and it creeps in over time. And it, and it begins as just a, a little thorn and slowly, it, our whole body is infected, and it, and it can destroy, and it can cause great division in the church. The, Satan takes the gospel, much like he took the apple, and he says, did God, did God really say that? I mean, it seems like you had a little bit of a hand in it. I mean, you, have, you did have perfect Sunday school attendance. I mean, you see, you had a little something to do with it, right? And, and that, that can start off innocently, but then that begins to morph and it becomes more and more about us and less and less about Jesus. This is how the enemy works and how he's always worked. One of the greatest dangers to the church is moralistic religion in place of gospel. Moralistic religion is one of the enemy's greatest tools and the Bible in the book of Galatians makes clear that it always has been. It works on the principle, if I obey Therefore, God accepts me. But the gospel works on the principle, I am accepted by God through Jesus, and therefore I do my best to obey because I love him. Those things, like if you just say those quickly, you can, they can kind of sound the same, and they are eternally different. 
They're not even remotely the same. Not only are they not remotely the same, they're the opposite of one another because one of them's about you and the other's about Jesus. And what happens is that you have these two groups of people and they, they sit in church together, they pray together, they both do everything they can to obey the Ten Commandments, but they do so for radically different reasons. And because they do these things for radically different reasons, they produce radically different results. Different kinds of character, different kinds of disciples. It's one of the great struggles within our church culturally. Is it If you, as subtle as it may seem, like you might be faithful, you might be diligent, you might, you, you might just give everything you have to the local church, but if, you're, if the church is not built on the truth, that we have been rescued by Christ and Christ alone, then slowly, like a thorn that starts small and causes an infection that spreads to the whole body, decay will come and death will come. Moralistic religion is not the gospel. You are not saved, rescued because of what you've done. God has re- It's about what God has done through Christ. I am accepted by God through Jesus. And that becomes my motivation to, to fulfill the law. Like, I, I want to live out the law because I realize that the law was, was given by a good father who loves me and wants me to be more like him. And that the, the law is ultimately intended for my protection. The, the truth, the things God calls me to, he desires of me because he knows they're best for me. And that's radically different than feeling that I have to do these things so that God will love me. And oftentimes our our worldly experience, maybe what we've experienced in our own childhood, our own life, can play into that and can affect that. And we can bring our our daddy issues to the gospel and God becomes just a a dad that I I just want to pay attention, I just want to love me, I just want to be proud of me. And, and, And God is a perfect father whose love for you is not based off what you do, but what he has done in Christ. One of these ways, one of these ideas when we're talking about moralistic religion versus gospel, one produces anger. It produces joyless compliance for the sake of tradition. It produces superiority. It produces insecurity. And it produces a condemning spirit. It does these things. You, you, I'm going to toe the line. I'm going to be committed to this for as long as it takes because that's what I'm supposed to do. And those who don't, forget them. Like I, you, you, all of a sudden, like I become better because of what I've done, because of how committed I've been to this, and it, that's that's joyless, and it, it leads me to see myself as something that I am not. The other, though, inevitably, slowly but inevitably, produces contentment, joy, humility, poise, and a forgiving spirit. It is for this reason that Paul says, anyone who preaches a gospel that is Jesus plus anything, be considered accursed. We should have nothing to do with them. Like, like I run into this all the time. In my job, I work with lots and lots of local churches, and there are false teachers who teach Jesus plus something, but they have a really nice smile on TV, and they seem so nice, and their books are always on sale at Walmart. And like, well, yeah, I don't agree with them on everything, but they are good. They're right about these. No, like Paul says, if somebody preaches that salvation comes from Jesus plus anything, consider them accursed and be apart from them. 
That's a bold stance to take on false teachers. But what's happening in Galatia, which is just, it happened in 18 months. Like these church plants are 18 months in and they're falling apart because it seeped in that quickly. Paul says, have nothing to do with him. And he says it twice. He, re, he says it and then he says, like, did you hear me? I said, let them be accursed. That's a bold stance to take and one we must take as God's people. And then lastly, in verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And kind of concluding his initial intro, again, he gets a little snarky. It's like he's just let them have it. And he says, does that sound like I'm trying to please man? Did I just please you? Nope, you're all ticked off at me already. Obviously, I'm not speaking because of you. I'm speaking on the authority of God. Paul makes clear that his motivation to speak the truth is not to please man, but to speak the truth that he knows they need. If I were trying to please man... He says, I wouldn't be qualified to be a servant of Christ. If my ambition was for me, if my ambition was personal gain, if my ambition was applause of man, if my ambition was how many podcast hits I have, how many books I could get out, if my ambition is to please man, I cannot at the same time be a servant of Christ. Paul has been through a great deal. He has faced many afflictions. His first missionary journey was not a comfort cruise, man. It was brutal. And he's persevered through all of that because of the hope given to him by Christ. And he wants the church to remember this. He wants the church to remember who he is, that he's not flying around in his private jet from missionary journey to missionary journey. Like, no, he's being stoned and imprisoned and is suffering on behalf of the gospel. And he wants to remind them that he's not doing that because it was a great career option. He's doing that because he knows their hope is in Christ and Christ alone. He's obviously not seeking man's approval. His life, the life of Paul, can only be explained by the gospel. Paul had everything. He had the ultimate corporate job. He had everything in his favor. He was loved by men. He was known for his works. He was looked up to. He had everything the world could offer. And ultimately, he had nothing, he declares now, that in Christ he now has everything, that all of that was vanity compared to the truth of the gospel. Those false teachers who want to attach the gospel to a list of rules, they're, what, what's happening in the church is they're doing their best to sell this false gospel to men. They need men to affirm their doctrine. They need men to affirm their existence. They need men to call them. Paul does not need this because he's been called of God and he is motivated by the gospel and the gospel alone. These false teachers in Galatia and the false teachers today they teach things that are pleasing to the ears of men. Rules make sense, okay? Like, rules make sense. A gospel that is based around our power is like candy to a baby if we believe that we can attain it. And many do, okay? Like, even though you know, like rules sound like a bad thing, the truth in our hearts is, like, we all want to just know how to, how, how to do it, okay? It's the reason that that piece of Ikea furniture comes with that very long sheet. Like, we, we don't want to just figure that out ourselves. It's, it's better if we can just walk step by step and know how to do it. Like, that, the, the gospel 
is much easier if I if I just have to check these boxes and I'm good. Like that's that's like candy to me, especially if I'm arrogant enough to believe I can actually do it, which I can't. If if I am aware that I can't, if I'm self-aware enough to know that, then the gospel, the law is a great discouragement to me. Because why would I even try? God obviously doesn't want me in his family and wants nothing to do with me. These false teachers, though, to these church people are selling candy to babies, giving them ownership of of their destiny, of their salvation. And Paul, he attacks this false teaching mightily. Under the Jewish law, he had sought the adoration of men, but now he belongs to Christ, and he has been rescued, and he is a servant of the one who rescued him. His devotion is to Christ and Christ alone because Paul knew full well what it was to be a rescued man. I want to close with this. This week, uh, Alex texted me about a new movie, this old man in the gun. Uh, He knew that I was anticipating that movie and that I had likely seen it because of two reasons. Number one, I'm a huge fan of heist movies, okay? As a in church planting, there's, it's, it's not real easy to dream about retirement, so maybe somewhere subconsciously that seems like the only reasonable option, but I've always loved heist movies. But as much as I love heist movies, I was also drawn to that movie because I'm a huge fan of Robert Redford. Like, he's my favorite. Robert Redford is cool in a way that guys just aren't cool anymore, and, and I would love to be one day. And uh, I, I saw the movie, and I have to admit, I was slightly underwhelmed. I hyped it up too much in my head. I still enjoyed it, but it definitely wasn't my favorite Robert Redford movie. My favorite Robert Redford movie is a much lesser known movie. It wasn't one of his more popular movies, uh, but it was a film that came out in 2013 called All is Lost. In this movie, uh, recently I, I read a, a, re- a review of that, that that came through the Gospel Coalition, and um, you know it made me remember and even watch it watch the, it again with even more intentionality. And uh, this movie, uh, J.C. Chander's, it's a lost at sea thriller, and uh, it's a one man movie that follows a man, Robert Redford, who fights to survive when his yacht starts taking on water somewhere in the Indian Ocean. The majority of this mostly wordless film finds Redford working tirelessly with all his energy and creative resources to save himself. The, the film is a, it's one of those films that's exhausting to watch because he's just tirelessly working, with, just trying new things. And there are points in the movie that you think, that's genius, like that's going to work. He, he, he figured out a way to save himself. Then inevitably it, it doesn't work and it leaves you in somewhat uh, of despair. Uh, But after setback after setback throughout the film, uh, just continual setbacks, confidence in his survival skills seems to grow thin. And you not only feel that in the audience, but you see that in the character. In the film's powerful final scene, and if you you haven't seen the movie but want to see the final scene, I actually shared just the final scene on our Facebook page uh, last night as I was prepping for today. Redford's character uh, appears to give up. He, he actually, what happens in the final scene is he's in a survival raft and uh, he tries to shoot off a signal flare and he accidentally sets his, his raft on fire. And so um, the final scene is this very hopeless scene um, where he is, is just drifting in the ocean and, and his, his raft is burning and um, he, he gives up. 
And, and ultimately what you see is that he accepts his fate of death and he just begins to, to drift, to, to sink into the ocean. In this scene, we, we see an acceptance that all is truly lost. I mean, this is, this is the ocean. Like, there's, there's no, no hope. There's no way home. There's no way to safety. And, and what happens in this scene is he, he begins sinking. And uh, as, he, as he gets well under the water, still somewhat conscious, you see this, this light um, up on the, on, the, on the top of the water. And, and he begins to swim toward it. And in the film's final shot, we see a hand reach down into the water and grab Redford and pull him to oxygen again. We, we don't know, the director, you, you don't know whose hand it is, only that rescue has arrived, only that a man who was lost has been pulled out of the depths. That beautiful scene and the reason that, that that scene of rescue, like every movie is ultimately about somebody who's in peril, who's been rescued. Every great story is about the same. And the reason that resonates with us so much as humans is because that's our story as God's people. And for us who aren't God's people, there's something in us that tells us we need to be rescued. That like Redford's character, Paul lived his life in an ocean of sin and death an ocean that he could never be rescued from. There was no end in sight. There was no reach to the bottom. That his life, there was no way home, except for the strong arm of Christ who reached in to that ocean of sin and death and plucked him out and rescued him by his, by Christ's strength and Christ's strength alone. That's the story of Paul, and that is the story of every disciple of Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you that you would rescue your people. I confess, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the, the depths of that. I don't understand um, why, uh, why, well, well, the, I don't understand the fullness of why you would rescue me. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful for your goodness. I'm thankful for your grace. Your grace, that Lord, your grace abounds far beyond what uh, what I could ever understand. I, I don't. I don't. I can't see the depths of it. I, I'm blinded. I'm just getting somewhat close to it, Lord. Just the reflection of it is too much for me to look at. Lord, I uh, I pray by your power that we would be a people who cling to the gospel and the gospel alone. And uh, Lord, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't just cling to that today, but we would cling to that each and every day. Lord, in the midst of our, our great despair, would you remind us of the gospel? Would you remind us of the, of the relentless love you have for us personally? Lord, remind us. Lord, don't let us forget. Holy Spirit, remind us. Holy Spirit, speak the truth of the gospel to us each day. And would our, our lives, would our lives reflect that we believe it? And when we don't believe it, would you speak it to us anyway that we might believe it? Lord, would you, uh, would you beat it into our heads? Would we beat it into each other's heads? Would we be a people who love the truth of the gospel? Lord, would we, would we live as you've instructed us to on the, out of the, the motivation for the, the love that you already have for us, Lord? Lord, I, I pray that we would be as crazy as David. Lord, would your law be like honey on our lips? I confess that it doesn't feel like that very often. But Lord, would you make it so? 
And would the world see us and, and, and be captivated by the, the bizarre transformation of radical grace? Lord, I love you. You are the only one worthy of our worship. You are the only thing worth giving all of our lives to. We love you and pray these things in your good name. Amen. As we prepare for uh, our time of communion this morning, we come to the table and we break the bread, representing Christ's body broken, and we dip it in the juice, representing Christ's blood poured out. We come to the table demonstrating with our hands what it is we believe with our hearts. That in our hearts we know, and if we don't know in the moment, we want to know, we want to believe. Lord, help our unbelief. And we come and we demonstrate what it is that we believe or what we ought to believe. That Christ alone, that the, the sacrament we hold in our hand is reflective of the only means for salvation and the only hope that we have. We live our lives seeking a million different sources for hope. Like we won't stop. We're so hard-headed about it. We just we want to find something else that's sad, that where we can find satisfaction because heaven forbid that, 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 that being fully submissive with all of our lives be the correct response. I, I don't want that and that can make me angry. I come to the table and I lay that aside and I acknowledge, I repent in my heart that I am wrong, that submission to Christ, that hope in the gospel is the only hope that there is. As you prepare your hearts for communion, um, just take a couple moments and, and consider that truth. Repent if you need to repent. Pray for assurance if you need assurance. Pray with another if, if that be what you need. But, but take a moment and just let the weight of the gospel sink in for, for a moment. If you're not in Christ this morning, if Christ alone is not your source of salvation, if he is not yours today, Communion's not for you, but Jesus is for you. And that would mean far more than just, that. that's just bread and a juice without the truth of the gospel inside of us. So don't do that. Instead, I'd love to take a few minutes and just tell you about Jesus. As you begin to posture your hearts to, to prepare for communion this morning, I want to read um, a, a devotion from the Valley of Vision um, just to kind of help set a framework and, and prepare your heart this morning. Life-giving God. Quicken me to call upon thy name, for my mind is ignorant, my thoughts vagrant, my affections earthly, my heart unbelieving, and only the Spirit can help my infirmities. I approach thee as father and friend, my portion forever, my exceeding joy, my strength of heart. I believe in thee as the God of nature, the ordainer of providence, the sender of Jesus, my Savior. My guilty fears discourage an approach to thee. But I praise thee for the blessed news that Jesus reconciles thee to me. May the truth that is in him illuminate in me all that is dark. Establish in me all that is wavering. Comfort in me all that is wretched. Accomplish in me all that is of thy goodness. And glorify in me the name of Jesus. I pass through a veil of tears, but bless thee for the opening gate of glory at its end. Enable me to realize as mine the better heavenly country. Prepare me for every part of my pilgrimage. Uphold my steps by thy word. Let no iniquity dominate me. Teach me 
that Christ cannot be the way if I am the end. That he cannot be redeemer if I am my own savior. That there can be no true union with him while that creature has my heart. That faith, that, that faith accepts him as redeemer and Lord or not at all. 